Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. In the summer of 2022, Kentucky Humanities had the opportunity to co-produce a special podcast entitled Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond. Through hours of interviews and extensive research, University of Louisville grad student Katie Cross Gibson brings the listener an intimate portrait of one of the most influential African-American critics, authors, and feminists of our time. In this mini-series, you'll find a thorough examination of the life Bell Hooks lived, reflections from her friends and colleagues, and the thoughts and philosophy which guided her for 69 years. Comes to bring the mail. She must speak to him. Or if he gets away, (laughs) the next day she'll say, now why did you leave before I got a chance to speak to you? I think that people see her as this sort of radical feminist, which she also was. But, you know, she didn't always sort of walk around with her fists held up and a scowl on her face. She was a funny woman who loved love and loved, loved life and loved to laugh. I think part of the reason that Belle doesn't get half of the recognition that she deserves is because her writing doesn't appear as this other kind of writing, right? It doesn't appear as academic writing. If she looked in your eyes and she saw that you were a genuine person, that you were kind, that you were humble, that you were willing to listen, that you were generous of spirit, then you were in with Bell Hooks. One thing that Bell taught me is that desire is important because understanding exactly what you want is the first stage in acquiring power. I think a lot of times now people, when they disagree with each other, they think of that as conflict they want to avoid. But Bell really wanted to have a really productive conversation about the things we disagree about. This is Katie Cross Gibson with the third episode of Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond. Episode two covered Bell's relationship to place, specifically to Berea, Kentucky, and Appalachia, and left off on food and pop culture. But here in episode three, we'll dive into discussion of the divine and of desire, of Bell's beliefs and how she continues to lift others up. I haven't heard it talked a lot about, but Bell had a deep belief system, and it was a really ecumenical belief system, and it was eclectic and strange, and, you know, it brought in lots of elements, and I'm sort of the same way, so we connected on the front. Kentucky writer, journalist, and activist Silas House. But I think she was the kind of person who could go, you know, to a church service and take from it what she loved and sort of overlook the things she, or not overlook, but 
ignore the things that, that she didn't love about the service, you know, and then she would fill that in with what elements of Buddhism or literature or secular kinds of things. She was just able to be really ecumenical in her belief system um, in a way that I really admired. Um, so she could talk, you know, at length about the teachings of Christ, or she could talk at length about Buddhism, or she could talk at length about the way that a piece of secular music or literature fulfilled a spiritual element for her. So to me, that's the best kind of person, you know, who can take all those different elements um, and find the divine in them. And she, she was very critical of organized religion at the same time. So I think that she thought a lot about how organized religion was very damaging on lots of levels in matters of, especially in matters of uh, orientation and race and gender. The church has used its power in all those ways to suppress people of color, um, women, queer people, etc. But I think that there was something about ceremony that she really loved, you know? And so we would often talk about those things. On Sundays, sometimes, you know, we would go to church and leave and then go, you know, have the big breakfast buffet at Boone Tavern and dissect it all. She called herself a Christian Buddhist. Berea College Professor Beth Fagan. I had many conversations with her about what that meant. I'm thinking about how when she gave a lecture at Berea College, someone asked her about how she sustains herself in this white supremacist culture, right? How do you not burn out? How do you sustain yourself? How do you keep your heart open, keep your spirit in a, a place of openness and love? You know, so much of her work in these later years has had to do with love. And so she was being asked, how do you do that when we're surrounded by domination and hatred, when police officers kill people of color on camera in front of everybody? How do you keep your heart open? And her answer struck me in the moment and it stuck with me. Her answer was that she meditates every day. She starts every day in meditation. Her spirituality was what Thich Nhat Hanh has called the safe island of mindfulness. When we are overwhelmed with feelings that are washing through us like fear or anger or anxiety or bitterness or despair or sorrow, we can take a seat in the chair of the witness mind Right. This is a meditative practice where we train our minds to simply observe what is going on, what is arising within us from a position of non-judgment, and then we release it, we let it go. And there is so much power in the witness mind. And Belle spoke about that. She talked about how it is possible to notice what is happening in this country and not to let it take root in your heart in a way that transforms you into a hateful person or a person who despairs or is depressed beyond belief. And because it wouldn't be a discussion about Bill if love wasn't mentioned, the last topic we'll touch on is how Bell's love was deep, true, and transformational. 
how she thought about desire, the individual, and friendship. I think that the later part of her, latter part of her life, she really wanted people to focus on love as a revolutionary act. And as we live in this world, we see how how revolutionary love is, right? Loving across difference and loving, you know, just um, feeling that everyone deserves to be loved and everyone deserves sort of a basic standard of living and, and such. And, and love is not this extractive thing, right? That it's really about giving. Former Berea provost and current Haverford College provost, Linda Strongleak. For the people she loved, you know, for my birthday, I remember when I turned 40, like she got me 40 things, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and some of them were like little silly things, right? But that's what she did. She remembered people's birthdays. She remembered, you know, everything ab about you and your family. For a birthday for the last couple of years, we she'd ask us to bring poems about love and read them to her, you know, for for her birthday. So it was that it was really act like she said, love is an act, right? It's not passive, it's an action. And in order to show love, you have to literally show the people you love. It's love, it's great to say love you. And she did. Um, you know, when you're walking out the door, you're on the phone, she was always gonna end with love you, love you. <laughs> You know, so so she did say it, but she it was much more of an action for her. It was about what she did with and for the people she loved. I guess you could say that leads to love. Retired educator and sister of Bell Hooks, Gwenda Motley. If you are willing to validate people, if the mailman comes to bring the mail, she must speak to him or if he gets away, <laughs> the next day she'll say, now, why did you leave before I got a chance to speak to you? And and our thinking is, Gloria, that man is doing, he's working. He doesn't have time to come and speak to you. But she doesn't see it that way. She see it as, let's make time for one another. Let's speak to one another. Let's greet one another. Let's show love to one another. She was also thought of as uh, divisive, I think, in, in mainstream. Crystal Wilkinson, Kentucky Poet Laureate and University of Kentucky English professor. When she was leading with love the whole time, with love and forgiveness. And that's one reason why she was able to talk to the lawn care guy with the whatever or whoever she saw somebody that had a confederate flag on their hat or whatever like she did not shy away from talking to anybody because she want she was curious about the human condition she was more curious about the human condition and how to dismantle patriarchy and white supremacy and those systems than she was dismantling an individual human being now, she wasn't against white people. She was against a white supremacist system that was oppressive. I think that people see her as a sort of radical feminist, which she also was. But, you know, she didn't always sort of walk around with her fists held up and a scowl on her face. She was a funny woman who loved love and love, loved life and loved to laugh. But I think that so many people, all about love, you can almost open up any page like I just did. And she says, my belief that God is love, that love is everything. Our true destiny sustains me. 
And even if I did that, like just doing that just now prepares me for what's next, like what I'm about to do. Like it's, it is like picking up the Bible and, and, you know, I just randomly opened it up and there was that. And um, this happened to be the same page that this was on her answering machine uh, for so many years. And sometimes I would just call and I knew I was going to get the answer machine and just to hear her voice on the answer machine. And this is how this is. I'm on page 83 and I just opened it up. And at the end of it, it says all awakening to love is spiritual awakening. And that's what she would have on her, on her answering machine. So I can hear her voice saying that and um, reading that sort of buoys me up for the day. I think this is one of the things that she's continuing to like teach me about love is that love is expansive. Crescent Molly Mason, professor of philosophy at Haverford College. That it's the heart the person, the being can be so expansive that that love, the love that she writes about, the love that she longed for, I think the love that some people project either rightfully or wrongfully onto her, I think that kind of love can be the kind of love that everyone can feel, right? And that's what we're working toward, right? She's like a small, profound example of, yes, of the expansiveness of love. But let's think about like, the profundity of love. Let's think about how love is liberatory, right? And that kind of liberatory love has space for everybody, right? It has space for people who haven't even met you. It has, it has space for being touched and transformed. And that's, and that's what love does. I think that she was a big proponent of tough love and that honesty is a big part of that tough love. I think we have a tendency to sort of, we see the word love and we think of it in a real simple way. And Bell's concept of love was very complex and contained multitudes. So I have I have seen a few times it be a little precious when people think about Bell Hooks and the way she talks about love. There was nothing precious about the way she talked about love, and I, I want people to remember that. I want to re- remove the tag of a radical idea of love because I know a lot of people use that. University of Kentucky English professor Damaris B. Hill. I like to think love is or it isn't. And if you have weak love, that's not really love of fear or restraint. And and none of that is really love in the way that I understand it. But furthermore, it's not liberatory. So it's another type of oppression. And maybe love and oppression can exist in the same space but it's probably not the best use of either. One thing that Bell taught me is that desire is important because understanding exactly what you want is the first stage in acquiring power. You cannot have any power, any social capital, any cultural capital, any personal power until you understand exactly what you want. And so being very much in touch with the source of your desires is is the first step of that journey. I will never forget that. I understood that before, like desire. I understood that desire was important. And that way, desire becomes multifaceted and weaponized towards social change even if it's a very basic desire. 
right? It becomes weaponized toward cultural evolution. That's major. How many times have we ignored our individual desire in decision-making? I think when you don't acknowledge that, it becomes rooted in um, seeking external social acceptance rather than personal desire, which changes the dynamics of power. It keeps you in a, can keep you in an oppressive loop. That solitary, that single lesson, right, has extended and expanded what I understand about liberation politics in a space like this. Are you even free if you don't understand exactly what you want? Are you even free if you are not very intimately in touch with your desires? How do you get free if you are not? Every decision that you make in an alternative universe where you don't center your desires is a form of compromise rather than negotiation. And maybe the compromises become greater and greater and greater. Whereas the charting of liberation, the compromises uh, do not grow exponentially, but your choices grow exponentially, right? So it's like compromise versus choice. That is the greatest lesson that Bell taught me, I think, or one of them. It didn't matter if you were the president of Berea College or if you were the groundskeeper who mowed the grass. She saw you as a human being who had intrinsic worth, whose dignity was intact, who had value. I'm thinking about how at her memorial at Berea College, I spoke afterwards to her friend Pete who did landscaping and handiwork for her for many years. Um, Pete is an older white man who um, has a very kind face and I met him for the first time at her memorial. But I had heard Belle talk about Pete for years because he was the one who took care of her. She would call him and he would come and help her up in the middle of the night. You know, he was a kind, kind soul who looked out for Belle in many ways that went above and beyond just handiwork and, and gardening. He was there for her in meaningful, physical ways toward the end. As I spoke with Pete after her memorial, his eyes teared up and he talked about how even though he hadn't read, you know, the work of the great Bell Hooks, you know, he knew her not as the celebrity, but as a friend, as a neighbor as someone who cared about him deeply. He said multiple times, she was good to me. She was good to my family. She was good to us. And she taught, he talked about how she saw him for who he was and respected him and loved him. And he used the word love. That's not something you hear older white Appalachian dudes say all the time. You know, Belle was a very special person because she was not a respecter of persons, as they say. You know, she didn't accord you more respect it, because of your status in this world. And so that, I think that was one way that she was working to dismantle systems of hierarchy, to dismantle the status quo, where some people are thought of with more deference or reverence than others. She was not someone who was impressed by your title. What she was impressed by was your soul. 
if she looked in your eyes and she saw that you were a genuine person, that you were kind, that you were humble, that you were willing to listen, that you were generous of spirit, then you were in with Bell Hooks. I think she, on the whole, denied hierarchical power structures. Zila Eisenstein, activist and political theorist. In terms of the way that she would present the ideas and concerns that she wanted to deal with, just in terms of everyday practice, they were in, you know, a, a kind of resistance and denial. By the time she had written From Margin to Center, a couple of the other very early books that were really trying to amass a consciousness amongst Black women, then she herself became almost the source of, because it was your part of uh, different women's movements, you know, and the meetings, you know, that, that actually was a source of commonality and community in a way that you, you know, you don't, you don't have today. So, I mean, when she spoke, she, you know, she spoke, of course, as bell hooks, she wrote as bell hooks, but it was part of a much larger uh, movement. I think part of the reason that bell doesn't get half of the recognition that she deserves in these I think I'm going to say specifically in philosophical circles, but it's because her writing doesn't appear as this other kind of writing, right? It doesn't appear as academic writing. It doesn't appear as, as the kind of writing, the hegemonic writing that people are told to, to, to respect. It's not coincidental. She's saying, right, she's, she's resisting this whole history, which is that you can have a sort of objective view or that the self or the subjectivity and, and all the ways that we're situated don't in some way inform our theory and, and, and actually don't make our theory more liberatory, right? And so when we can bring our full selves, come to theory through ourselves, right? First of all, we have a hook. So we're looking for intersubjectivity, right? So rather than thinking of the truth as being something we can find objectively, rather maybe it is something that we can find through the intersubjective, meaning that I must bring my subjectivity to the table, you must bring your subjectivity to the table, and through the kind of kind of melding and, and thinking through and, and pulling apart of these subjectivities, that's how we get to the truth, right? And so that's what Bell, that's what Bell is all about. That's why her her work looks like it does. She wanted the work to be accessible to as many people as possible. It was really important to her. Well, again, subjectivity is one means of accessibility. Also sort of not making people feel like the work is beyond them is a, is another means. And so that sort of very particular specific way that she had of kind of talking about herself, talking about a friend that she knew, who said this thing, talking about Stuart Hall, talking about Freud, and then going back and talking about bamboozled, you know, in one paragraph or two paragraphs, that thing that she's doing that seems like, where are all, where are all these threads coming from? She's doing that again on purpose to say to us, theory comes from all over the place. It comes from high and low. It comes from academics. It comes from people in the community. It comes from my friend's son. I mean, it comes from all, it com and it comes from me and it comes from you and it comes from us, right? And so that is a highly significant philosophical contribution. She was just had this um, wonderful 
curiosity about people and and human lives and and loved children loved babies like every time you know she remembered the names of my grandchildren and and always wanted to um, know what they were doing and when she she met them she was like oh, you know oh hi Thomas she always remembered um who he was she adored my partner Ron and and remembered things about him and his artwork and she was very much someone who was in tune with the human in as an individual so her intellect was definitely there and alive and zinging all the time but on a person to person level that's why you know like when you were saying that she would talk to the lawn guy or, or whoever she was always doing that she was curious about individuals and saw people as individual people and even people who were you know on the other side of of what her thinking was she was just really curious about what they thought and and how they thought and also in some ways that was sort of an act of of liberation to be this woman who you know particularly at the end of her life was small in stature and and would be just plant herself in a room of white men and be like, you know, hello and, and greet everyone and make sure she looked them in the eye and really force them to speak to her. Cause that, that too is a way of liberating, of being an activist. Um, and she sort of lived that every day. She would invite me over to meet people that were visiting her and then I would find out she had given them my books or articles by me to read or things like that. And you just, you never knew she would call and say, Hey, come over for a little while. I have some company. I want you to meet. You didn't know who that was going to be. Like one time it was Emma Watson. And so she had given Emma Watson some of my nonfiction to read. Um, or it might be Cornel West or Laverne Cox or Gloria Steinem. She treated all those people the same way she treated everybody else. It was very egalitarian when you sat around and talked. And so I came to really admire the way that she was so supportive of my writing in real quiet ways. So she was often orchestrating things like that, conversations and such. That's one of the things I really admired about her. She, she didn't want a lot of thanks for that sort of stuff. And I mean, Belle could hold court a lot of people really deferred to her so that it came that a lot of conversations were just bell talking for a while. But she also, she really wanted to hear other people. She would prompt you to tell her your story as well. And she asked a lot of questions. So on one hand, she was a brilliant conversationalist in that she could just talk for hours. But she's also a brilliant conversationalist in that she engaged other people as well. And she really wanted to hear their points of view. And I was often really interested and surprised by the way that she would respond to differing points of view. She wasn't somebody that shut down disagreement in a conversation. She sort of loved it and fed off of it. And she didn't see it as being argumentative. She saw it as discourse. And I think that's something that's really missing in our contemporary culture. I think a lot of times now people, when they disagree with each other, they think of that as 
conflict they want to avoid. But Bell really wanted to have a really productive conversation about the things we disagree about. She thought that she thought that by talking about those things, it was a way to find solutions and to go forward. And I appreciated that too. I always felt like she really fostered conversation in a way that balanced being generous, but also being totally fierce and letting people know, you know, I'm not to be messed with, but I'm also going to listen. I'm going to let, you know, I'm going to hear you, but then I'm also going to tell you what I think about that. She was willing to have a conversation with you if you were willing to think about why it was problematic. Those things were problematic. So she she wasn't this sort of absolutist, I will not talk to a Trump supporter um, because she did and had really deep and rich conversations with people who supported Trump um, and friendships and had hard questions for them (laughs) as they had hard questions for her. But um, I think that was... One of the other things that I really appreciate with her, I, I worry about how, you know, we sort of draw these lines in the sand and like, I'm here and you're there and there's you know, ne- never the twain shall meet. And that's not who she was. Right. I mean, she she was clear in her personal life about her boundaries. Right. But if she wanted she wanted to hear and understand a person's perspective and she wanted them to hear hers as well. And you can't do that if you won't even talk to each other, right? If you won't even allow for the possibility of conversation. You have to have a conversation with people across difference. Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing offers outstanding instruction in a supportive literary community. Study across genres. Explore the interrelatedness of the arts. Travel to Paris next summer for short-term study abroad or stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies on campus. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. And now we're back with Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond. The things that she was doing with her life just seemed way different from mine. Again, Gwenda Motley. But she was always encouraging and always saying, now, Gwenda, you should do this. Now, why haven't you gone back to school? Now, why haven't you done? I think you should get your doctorate degree. So she was always encouraging and always wanting to help us see that we could do. That just being from a little small town doesn't mean that you can't explore the world. To be around Belle was to be constantly sharpened. She was like a whetstone sharpening a knife. And if you were not up for being sharpened, you might have to just take a seat. Because to be in her presence was to be willing to be sharpened in that way. But again, it was always in the spirit of love. It was always with the generosity and abundance of caring that she offered these critiques or these corrections or these 
emendations of thought. She was never seeking to tear you down. She was never seeking to hurt anyone. She spoke the truth. She was bold. She was honest. She was radically honest. And she taught me the importance of being that way as well. And it's not a comfortable thing in a society that prizes politeness and self-deprecation. Every time I went to Belle's house, you know, sometimes I would, <laughs> if I'm honest, sometimes I would be driving down the interstate heading back to Lexington mad at something that she said, because again, she was just straightforward, like, boom. <laughs> and I would just go, oh my gosh. But more times than I was mad, I was lifted up, lofted up in some way when I left, um, renewed in some way, renewed about ways to, to sort of free myself in some way in my life, renewed about my career, renewed about writing, renewed about what was possible as a woman. And I think she just had that, that way of instilling that sort of hope in, in, you know, in her work, in her books, but also in her conversations with people. I mentioned that Belle always, and I mentioned this, and I will continue to mention it because it's just so, it just was so meaningful and impactful to me and, and still affects me how I move and engage in the world is that she always introduced me as a philosopher. She always told people I was a philosopher. And I didn't feel like a philosopher. Like I like what am I? Con- I'm not contributing anything. I'm not thinking new thoughts. I'm not. You know, I don't know why she keeps saying that. But I think that's one of the other things that we shared is that she, like, um, I have a PhD in philosophy. So in some way, the institution has recognized my claim to philosophy in a way that the institution recognizes people. And Bell didn't get recognized in that way. And I think that's something else that we shared that I didn't recognize that we shared when she was living. And that kept her saying to me and saying to others, she's a philosopher, she's a philosopher, she's a philosopher, because we needed to share that claim that thinking is ours too, that we have not only been contributing, but like our major contributors and need to continue to contribute, right? And that it, not just the Institute, like it's it, it's meaningful. It was meaningful to her that the institution recognized me in that way. And also that I understand exactly what we've been talking about, that it's a praxis, right? That it's not about being recognized as a doctor. It's not about these white people, these academics, you know, seeing that you're so smart. It's about, it's about everyday being. It's like, what does it mean to be a philosopher, right? What does it mean to be a person who understands or who really thinks about the connection and engagement and, and theory and praxis, right? What, is it, what does it mean to be that? And I think that's something that we shared because I think in her life, as well as her writing, Bell was a philosopher, Bell was a thinker. I think that colored even the gossip, you know, even this, like, you know, she wanted to understand people, right? She was... And those little gossipy stories, you know, would sometimes end up in a book or in an interview or something because they they affected her. And, and she allowed people to change her. She allowed what she heard to change her. The 
The most important thing about Bell for me was our friendship. And our friendship was deeply political in a way that is is unique. We were growing up when our country was really filled with the women's movement or movements. And we were a part of it and them, you know, I mean, in the sense that uh, the the earliest work that Bell did was her from uh, margin to center. And I mean, people hardly ever mention it now. You know, to me, that was the most important thing she did, because in that moment, she was arguing that the concept of women's liberation was centered in white and primarily middle class women. And so much of what she was doing was trying to uh, disperse that that center to be then inclusive and then sometimes to center uh, the uh, black woman's body. Well, we worked, I mean, early on, I was really working a lot on the relationship of Marxism and feminism and particularly working class women to issues of um, women's liberation. And she was um, always, as a Black woman, very self-conscious about class. And so we, you know, a lot of our, our earliest connection was really kind of intellectually, politically on trying to see how these different concerns kind of melded together. What I loved about our friendship was we would pull each other in each place. You know, it was really us trying to figure out ways to find new capacity. So in this new this syllabus um, that I put together, the introduction was really to say and Bell, you know, I mean, I, you know, she was right there with me as I was writing it, really, was the idea that uh, this is a new possibility going back to new and old. Okay. And the new possibility here is that now that white women are suffering more similarly to women of color, that there is a possibility of a new universality of struggle and an honesty of that, that of course, history itself defines for us. I mean, we don't ever get to be outside history. Anyway, all of that is Bell for me. I mean, you know, we're, that's just how we always fought together, you know, pushing each other. So what, well, that's old. Well, that's new. Well, how does that come together? Where's, where's a, where is the black man there? You know, where is the working class white woman here? So a lot of the work was that way. To me, courage is everything. If you're not courageous, you, you just can't live questioning and wondering and imagining. And so, of course, you know, Belle was courageous um, with her brain all the time. And that to me was the source of our friendship because there's nothing that I love better than really thinking and then trying to do something with it, you know? And that's why in this moment, like when people were saying to me, so Zila, what do we do? How do we how do we respond in this post-row world? You know, that's why, you know, there were these ways of just some of the same kinds of questions that 
came up so many years ago for different reasons. I mean, how do you come together with that? And so for for Belle, the you know, the courage was she really didn't worry what what the response would be. And even if she might be wrong and you do have to be willing to be wrong in order to find out if you can be right. We had a pretty instant friendship and I really felt like she was like family, you know, and one reason I felt that way is because Belle just told you exactly what she thought. That's the way it is with family. Often family can say things to you and you just go right on, you know, you might, it might miff you, but you just move right on and don't like that much of it. And it was sort of that way with Belle too, in that she was so honest. Sometimes she would say things that were shocking, (laughs) you know, shockingly honest, but somehow they were also said in a constructive way that made me feel like I appreciated the honesty. And, you know, her honesty rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But for me, I really appreciated knowing where I stood with her. And so to me, it made the friendship really tight. But also she was just, a, you know, such a dear friend and such a tender presence. She, I, I've never known anybody who was so simultaneously fierce and tender. You know, the, the word vulnerable comes to mind, but I, I hesitate to use that because I don't mean in any way that she was weak or when I say there was a vulnerability about her, what I mean is that she there was a willingness in her to reveal herself. She was willing to make herself vulnerable and talk out really hard things. And, and so I love that about her. I think there are people who can make your mind ache. Chad Berry, Vice President for Alumni, Communications, and Philanthropy, and good professor of Appalachian Studies at Berea College. And I'm like scanning my hard drive of memory here about some really high-powered intellectuals with whom, uh, whom I've met or with whom I've had conversations or been at a dinner table or something. But there aren't many people who could, in one second, sear your mind or challenge it or blow your mind, and then immediately flip to a movie or a remark or something much less highbrow, quite the way that Belle could. And she, and for that, she was so real. I mean, she could be simultaneously so unreal in terms of the majesty and the awesomeness of her mind as a scholar, public intellectual, cultural critic, and then immediately just (laughs) go to being a regular gosh darn it in terms of, you know, chatty and gossipy and funny and Sometimes it was hard not to get whiplash, frankly, from those switches and turns. But it made her real. And it made her rarer, I think, as a human being. Next time on Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond. There hasn't really been a separation for us in that her choice was not to have a funeral. In one sense, we've not really mourned 
the passing of Gloria. So much as we have celebrated slash mourned Bell. Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond, a Thank Humanities podcast miniseries. Hosted by Katie Cross Gibson and Bill Goodman. Written by me, Katie Cross Gibson. Produced by Kentucky Humanities in conjunction with Dynamics Productions of Lexington, Kentucky. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.